HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Garden Cult, garden design and coaching. For a 15% discount on virtual garden consultations and coaching sessions, use code HRN15. Learn more at GardenCult.com. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. For 50 years, the Center for Science and the Public Interest has been America's number one food and health watchdog. Whether it was unregulated food additives, remember red dye number two and all of its colorful friends, deceptive food labeling, protecting healthy school lunch, or monitoring junk food marketing to kids, CSBI has been leading the charge successfully. After 45 years under one leader, Dr. Michael Jacobson, Dr. Peter Lurie came in to helm the organization. Now, as CSPI hits its 50-year mark, our question to Peter, who is he? What drives him? And how will he reshape CSPI? We share our wonderful conversation with Peter Lurie with you today. What we found is a very serious man with a very wry sense of humor and a very strong sense of social justice. Let's have a listen. But I really want to start the conversation with asking you to, to be a little bit more personal and talk about what kind of role food plays in your life? What kind of food household life did you grow up in? I'm tempted to say that it wasn't really clear that our family was a food family until I started to think about it. And that turned out to be completely wrong. For one thing, my grandmother, I'm from South Africa, was a butcher, extraordinarily enough. And she did so after she left my grandfather, carrying at that point two one-year-old twins. Uh, including, of course, my mother. And she set about raising these children on her own in the 40s. Very hard to believe that there were too many people who were doing that kind of thing at the time. Of all things, she became a butcher. And she opened up a place that was called Linksfield Meat Purveyors, which was across the street from the King David High School of Johannesburg, one of the two Jewish high schools in Johannesburg. And I went to the one Jewish high school in in Cape Town. 
She opened that up. There she was serving all this food and meat in particular to these students for all these years. And she did so. One of the things that she did that was especially noteworthy for us was she used to make what for South Africans anyway is considered a delicacy, which is a form of dried beef jerky called biltong. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. In the world of beef jerky, it's a highly regarded product. I'm not sure that that exactly recommends it. In any event, when we would go up to Johannesburg to visit, the biltong would be ready. And the biltong could be made of beef. It could be made of ostrich. It could be made of various antelopes that are local to South Africa. That was a big excitement. I just went to visit my brother and sister in the last week. My sister, for a birthday gift for the man who has everything, managed to find an actual biltong maker. So now I have this rather strange device, which is really a fan that dries things out. In advance of going up there, I made my very own biltong, not out of antelope or ostrich, I might add. That's like a traditional thing for us now. So, you know, that got me to thinking, well, yes, or maybe, yes, it was true that food was a big part of our lives. And then I started thinking about my father's side of the family. Lo and behold, it's the same story. And somehow I hadn't put it together. My grandfather, who was born in a small village in Lithuania, came to South Africa at about the age of 15, in about 1905. And there wasn't much that an immigrant boy could do to earn money, least of all, if he didn't speak the language. So he started off literally going door to door and selling eggs. And he built it up. And eventually he had a factory in a particularly famous part of Cape Town called District 6, another area that was raised, this time by the apartheid government, because it had become a community in which to mix, and this was seen as unacceptable, so they just raised the whole district. It had been a very famous part of town because the immigrants had always come there, many others after that, and it created an entire culture around this. He eventually built up a factory, which I can remember visiting, as a kid, and it was a very crude kind of thing. The one thing that I remember was there would be these conveyor belts of eggs, and they would come through, and there was a light that came up from below. And the purpose of the light was to illuminate any crack that might be in the shell. And if that was the case, they would toss it. God knows what kind of technology they have for that now, but they would have a black woman sitting behind this curtain in the dark as the light came up from below and the eggs came along. Well, eventually, he started to expand from the egg business into the chicken business, which I suppose answers the question of which came first. (laughs) Uh, But in any event, he built it up and it became a pretty big enterprise. He passed on to the three offspring, which were my father, his brother and sister. My father was a physician and disinterested in all this. My aunt was doing about the amount of work that most wealthy white South African women were doing at that time, which is to say not much at all. My uncle, on the other hand, was a real businessman. He brought out my father and his sister and took over the company and he turned it into a gangbusters company. I remember he came to America because that was where you got all good ideas for marketing, or at least that's what we thought in South Africa, and came back with a name for the company, which was called County Fair. And he built it up into the second the largest chicken business in South Africa. i just add one other last thing on that. My uncles had a son, more or less my contemporary, whose name was David, so David Lurie. And it turned out that in another branch of the family, there was another David Lurie, and his family was in the fish business. We, I didn't know them terribly well. <laughs> but the two Davids were more or less contemporaries. 
and apparently with some difficulty distinguishing between the two of them. My first cousin, the one on the chicken side, he was known as David Hunner, which means in Afrikaans, David Chicken. And <laughs> the other one was known as David Fiss, which is David Fish. And that's how the two of them were distinguished, you know, literally by the foodstuff that separated their parents. Neither your mother with her her mother, the incredible butcher, nor your father coming from a family of chicken went into the food world. No, no, they didn't. My father became a physician and then so did I. My mother was a secretary for a while in South Africa. Then she became more or less of a volunteer, which was a very active person by the standards of white South African women of that time. When she came to the United States, a very remarkable thing happened. I'm not very proud of this, but we had had servants in South Africa. And we'd slowly been having fewer of them over time, but there were at times a couple maybe, and a gardener who came once in a while. But suddenly we arrived in the United States and it became a totally different story. There were no servants. We were managing everything on our own. And the next thing, my mother went to work. She got a job in this sort of secretarial function for a market research company. And she did that until she retired for like a good 20 years. It's impossible in South Africa with all of that help, apparently, to work. And yet when she went to the United States, rather, she was sort of rebirthed as a person who could enter the workplace and a remarkable transformation. I always said that the person who changed the most from our coming to this country was actually my mother. How did you happen to come to this country? I was entering the period in which I would have been eligible for the military. Nobody thought that that was a good thing for a nice Jewish boy. Moreover, you know, we didn't believe in what the government was doing. So entering this boot camp and being sent off to some part of Africa where the South African government was exercising its colonial ambitions was not really something we had any investment in. I think the largest reason it comes back to family, which is my father saw before his contemporaries that the people who were reasonably well-educated, they'd go to college, you could get a deferral for the, from the military for at least a while, and you could go to medical school or whatever else, and then you would graduate and you'd be in your 20s. And then what people would do is they would leave. They'd turn around and say, why do I want to be? And they'd be gone. And the result of that was a phenomenon very much with us to this day in which you have people of my age spread around the world, maybe Canada, United States, England, Israel, Australia, right? those are the usual places. And then you have these elderly parents who weren't able to get out and who remain behind. And my father saw that. He didn't like one little bit the idea that the family would be split up. And so he had the idea that we all get out together and there would be a way to keep us together. By American standards, call New York, New Jersey, and Rhode Island, my, where I and my siblings live together, in American terms, <laughs> it's kind of together, you know. Yeah. South Africa, you live around the corner, but in this country, that's together. It's a pretty much of a success. It's possible to get very good education in South Africa. It certainly helps to be white. It helps to have the money to pay for a private school. When we came to this country, we felt like we were pretty well prepared for all that. And then I was in medical school. The big thing that happened in medical school, well, I mean, the main thing that happened in the first two years in medical school was that I just hated it. I mean, it's awful. It was a dispiriting experience in which they made you memorize all kinds of things that you knew didn't really matter, that would never come up, but that there was some kind of elaborate rite of passage that they felt they needed to put you through in order that you could join the club. I got tired of that after a couple of years. And so I 
took a year off. And I came to Washington and worked for a group called Public Citizen, which is another Ralph Nader-founded public interest group. They had a branch called the Health Research Group that focused exclusively on medical issues. I worked there for a year with a guy by the name of Sidney Wolf, who was the head of it. That was a life-changing experience. That was where you could come to see where these things that they had forced you to memorize in the first couple of years could actually be useful that you could put them to work in the interest of the public as opposed to for some other obscure reason and it felt meaningful it felt useful it felt like it could be applied in some way that would be useful to society we had a few successes in the year that i was there we had a a warning label for example that was put on children's aspirin that warned against the risks of what's called rise syndrome in people who take children's aspirin if the child has chickenpox or the flu and that felt like a big accomplishment and you could see that you had done something that was there on the box, right? So I that made it actually very easy to go back to medical school because then I could see that the purpose of the whole thing. And I went back and it became enjoyable, actually. I finished off there in medical school. I went to University of California, San Francisco to do a residency in family practice. And when I was done with that, I joined the faculty in the Department of Family Medicine and also separate department epidemiology, mostly doing stuff on AIDS at the time. It was a raging epidemic. This is the early 90s. I got to work mostly on sort of behavioral and epidemiological questions in Africa and other parts of the developing world, but also in policy issues in the United States, including the limitations that were placed on the availability of sterile syringes for drug users. We wrote a report for the Centers for Disease Control that was a sort of big report of the time and some impact, I think. That became an identity, all of this work around drug use and needle exchange. Anyway, to cut a long story short, at a certain point, I had a girlfriend who got a job at the University of Michigan. So I went up there to be with her. I got embroiled in controversy up there in which we had identified a series of clinical trials that were being conducted in developing countries that were using placebos, even though there was a known effective treatment. The condition was being HIV positive and pregnant. And the object was to prevent transmission from the mother to the infant. And there was, in fact, a drug, AZT, that did that and had been shown to do that. Folks went overseas to try to develop less expensive versions of that effective regimen. And in so doing, they compared these less expensive regimens to placebo. Myself and Sidney Wolf thought this was unethical. So we caused a big ruckus over this. And it, it was a big ruckus. I mean, you know, we hit above the fold in the Times three times in a five or six week period, and people resigned from the New England Journal of Medicine over this. But it made it very difficult for me to get a proper job at the University of Michigan. They saw me as an activist and a troublemaker, and I don't think they saw me as a person who could produce academic work, more I was a troublemaker. Were you surprised? Did you go into that expecting that that would be the outcome? Well, it's interesting. So ever since this time that I spent at Public Citizen, I been a troublemaker. And once you are a troublemaker, you can't really stop yourself. <laughs> um, you might have noticed. And so I, you know, done a lot of very controversial things that I, you know, didn't mention earlier. We, I criticized the university itself for suppressing an article about thyroid hormone. I'd gone after any number of drug companies. I went off to the World Bank at one point. There were lots of things that we did that were, you know, I did that were very critical. But the university... San Francisco really, to a remarkable degree, gave me that freedom. And so I sort of gotten used to the idea that you could be in academia 
And you could say these things and you could get away with it. And then I got to Michigan and there were two problems. The first was that I was new and they didn't know me and there was no history at all. That was the first problem. The second was that we'd gone off to the World Bank, all these drug companies, universities, what have you. But what we did in this case with these mother-to-infant trials was we went off to the funders. We went off to the CDC. We went off to the NIH. We went off to the World Bank because they were the funders of these trials. I can see how that would make you unpopular. And that's (laughs) what makes a difference. It turns out that it's more acceptable to criticize the university itself than it is to criticize the funders of the university. At least that's what my experience is. Cut a long story short, perhaps most importantly, the relationship didn't work out. Next thing I'm in the freezing cold of Ann Arbor, and I'm like, what am I doing here? There is no reason to stick around. We'll be back in a minute to hear more about exactly what Peter Lurie was planning to do. This episode is brought to you by Garden Cult, garden design and coaching. Carmen DeVito is a professional garden designer, certified New York State landscape professional, and the founder of Garden Cult. You may also know her from HRN's home gardening videos and our series, We Dig Plants. Garden Cult is a culmination of Carmen's more than two decades of experience designing and building gardens in New York City. Carmen believes that gardens and outdoor spaces should be healthy, environmentally sustainable places that enhance the health of people, nature, and the planet. She knows how to help you maximize the space you've got, help you work with and make the most of the materials, plants, and trees that you already have, and create an outdoor place to use and enjoy for you and your family. Get started at GardenCult.com. For a 15% discount on virtual garden consultations and coaching sessions, use code HRN15 through September 30th, 2021. That's code HRN15 at GardenCult.com. And we're back with Dr. Peter Lurie. So I went off to Washington and I rejoined Sid Wolf and the public citizen group. We did all kinds of stuff, but most of it was drugs, medical devices, dietary supplements. One of the great things about public citizen that I learned the first time was that I'd actually thought I'd spend the rest of my life fighting the good fight and losing. That's what I thought would happen. And that would be fine. That would be honorable and you had done your best in life and it turned out the way it did. But actually, it turned out that you didn't have to settle for that you could actually have success. When that starts to happen, that's a different story. Now I work from the presumption that in some not small fraction of cases, you'll have success. And the very empowering thing, part of it is that you have to be able to define the right size of project. If your project is defined as eradicate poverty, well, you're probably not going to do that well on that. But if it is, you know, get a box warning on aspirin, or if it's relabel a statin drug or whatever else, that you might succeed on. So I think a lot of it is in finding the right scale of things. But what I'm trying to understand is this gets nurtured. The sense of I can be the gadfly, I can fight the good fight, and I can be effective and people will listen that level of sense of potency, of agency, that's pretty amazing. Yes, that's right. Maybe it's a little bit like agreeing to 
settle for something that's a bit smaller than your biggest ambition. But in the end, the, the satisfaction of that is undeniable. Here's a good example, actually. One of the things we got interested in was hexavalent chromium. Uh, you have to say that slowly for me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, it's kind of unknown and then at the same time, rather well-known. It reached its greatest fame in the movies. The film Aaron Brockovich, you may remember, was all about hexavalent chromium. In that movie, there is groundwater contamination with hexavalent chromium, which it is claimed in the film causes a very wide array of illnesses. Frankly, too far, too wide an array of illnesses to actually likely be true in every case, but nonetheless, not a good thing to have in groundwater, don't get me wrong. But the actual evidence of toxicity of hexavalent chromium comes from studies that have been done with workers. There you have people who are exposed to hexavalent chromium, perhaps in a manufacturer of old chrome plates that they used to have in cars, for example, or items that used to be in the kitchen. But those chromium products were manufactured somewhere and they were dug out of the ground somewhere by people who breathed in dust mm -hmm. that included hexavalent chromium, which places them at a pretty substantially increased risk of lung cancer. There are a number of studies that have shown this repeatedly, and, and nobody really even questions that that's the case. However, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA standard, allowed exposure levels much higher than what the threshold, the level at which risk for hexavalent chromium-induced lung cancer had been demonstrated. But they didn't do anything about it. Years went by, and it was many times too high dozens of times higher than it should have been. So eventually we used one of the great tools of activism, which is the citizen petition, and asked OSHA to reduce the exposure levels, which they said they would do, but didn't. So we sued them and they told the court that they would do it, which is how they won the case, but they didn't do it anyway. So we sued them another time and eventually we won. The result of this was a court order that established literally month by month milestones that the government had to comply with and met every one of those milestones except for the very final one which they missed by a month no big deal and the standard came out and it was the first chemical occupational health standard that the government had promulgated in 20 years and then only under the force of a court order so that was a big accomplishment, and it, it was a pretty good example of how you use this citizen petition process. If you've got the lawyers at your beck and call, then you can bring in the lawyers when there's an opportunity to sue. The American system has its problems, but citizens can get access to the courts, and those of us who know how to use them can make a difference. And So that was a pretty good victory, I'd say. And isn't that, if I'm correct, isn't that kind of how... Michael Jacobson and his team started CSPI, also understanding that just sue the bastard. <laughs> yeah, the initial CSPI group was formed in 1971. Over the years, CSPI had a number of different foci. It started off with additives with a heavy emphasis on environment. There were times when it was a scientific integrity project, but over time, what it turned into was a nutrition organization and a food-related organization. And uh, that's pretty much what I inherited in 2017. I'd left public citizen and I spent eight years at the FDA. And so I got to this point where there was this new administration coming in led by some guy with orange hair. And that didn't really seem like a very hospitable place for me to be. 
saw that's how I came to take over the position. At CSBI. Is it a comfortable fit to go from the Food and Drug Administration to CSBI? On one side, you're the regulators. On the other side, you're the gadflies, the activists. Back in activism on a kind of second time around. I think it's probably fair to say that I'm willing to cut the regulators a certain kind of slack that maybe I wouldn't have in the past. That may also just be getting older or growing up or something. I think I've become a bit more generous. What I like to say is that one of the theories is always conspiracy, doing this and that for the following nefarious purpose. But there's always an alternative explanation. And I, I, I mean this to sound compassionate, is uh, it's incompetence. That's the alternative, right? That nobody's actually trying to do a bad thing. For whatever reason, they can't. Maybe they're just not that good at their jobs. Maybe they don't care enough. Maybe the bureaucracy is structured in such a way that it's not possible. Maybe the law prevents them from doing what they know to be right. Maybe there's not enough time. Maybe there's not enough resources. I think of myself increasingly over time as a science person. You remember the first time somebody referred to me as a scientist? I thought it was ludicrous. Scientists are people with test tubes and bell jars and things like that. But more and more, that, that is the way I look at it. I mention this because it's the science that links it at the center of it all, whether you're in government or out of government. In my line of work, it's science that really matters. It's the quality of that science that really is the most important thing. And over time, I've found myself increasingly drawn to that idea. When I went to the government, I thought I'd be going to meetings and standing up for the little guy up against all these other people who were the thrall of industry kind of thing. What actually happened when you're in government is you go to meetings and you have a lot in common with these people. What you're trying to do is produce good product, right? You want things to be written well. You want the statistics to be done right. So when you move out of government back into the, the advocacy sector, I feel just the same way. I want our work to be good. I want it to be the best it can be. What I've also come to realize is that the ethos of science is, and this is going to sound ridiculously pointy-headed, but if you're interested in science, you're interested in doing your job well. You're interested in sharing. That's the essence of science, right? It's about building on the work of what other people have done and other people will build on your work. It's about transparency. It's about integrity. It's about listening to other people and their ideas. All of these ideas come from the scientific method. Prove your point, gather the data, don't jump to conclusions, be generous to people, you might be wrong. You can live a life by that. I don't know that I have, but you can live a life by those guideposts that come straight out of science and it can show you a way to guide your way through whatever challenges come your way. Talk to me just a little before we wrap this up about what you think the three, four, five major sort of nutrition food campaigns have to be for CSPI over the next couple of years. Where do you see that you have work to do and where do you see that you have essentially the tools to make that work make a difference? What I'm interested in is social injustice. That's what I'm interested in. You know, things that are wrong, people who are suffering when they shouldn't. That's what I care about. And if there is a way to alleviate that through science, then that's where I'll try to be. And if that leads you to the COVID vaccine as an important health issue, if I have the bandwidth, I'll be there. If this topic instead is food, the way it is mostly at CSPI, that's fine with me. Because at the end of the day, it's all about consumer protection of any kind. 
and that it happens to be through food at this moment is perfectly acceptable. It's what I'm doing and I'm happy with it. I really am. But at its highest level, it's not per se about food. It's about the underlying injustices. And all you need is a good old fashioned pandemic to show you how true that is. We've just been through a pandemic that at first glance is about infectious disease, but at any kind of deeper uh, inspection reveals itself to be about social injustice, about all of the disparities between who was exposed and why they were exposed, whether or not they had access to testing, whether or not they were properly treated in the hospital, whether or not they had access to vaccination, all of this. I'm not just thinking domestically, I'm thinking about internationally, because at the end of this pandemic is the greatest disparity of them all, which is the disparity whereby those of us who are only at sort of moderate risk for COVID suck up all the vaccines and you have people all around the world who could make better use of them, by which I mean risk for getting infected and higher risk for a bad outcome. So that's the kind of social injustice that, that draws me to this work. At CSPI, we started to touch on things that were much beyond what CSPI used to do. The food is terribly important, but to me, it's especially important as a lens into other kinds of injustice and suffering. Mm -hmm. Just great. Thank you, Peter. I don't know that you were so much formed by food, but you were certainly formed by the social justice, which made so many people leave South Africa. That clearly is a through line here. Yeah. 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 No, I think that's right. I think there's no crucible for observing social injustice better than growing up in South Africa when I did. I mean, it was appalling and, you know, you can't escape the mark that that makes on you. You've seen that as a degree of, of injustice, really kind of unimaginable almost at this point. It's now 25, 26 years since the end of apartheid, but already it's starting to feel like ancient history, the kids who've grown up, who haven't experienced it, and that's true in South Africa, they have this wonderful, <laughs> playing off that, um, that old uh, corny old movie, so the people who are born in South Africa after a point it ended are called the born freeze, right? <laughs> like, you remember that film uh, about, about the lion and all that, very corny and everything. But that's what they call them in South Africa, of course, right? So they call it the born freeze. Even them, you know, it's, it's, it's a generational change. Yeah. Thank God they didn't have to experience it. It's bad enough as it is. I mean, it's still a long way in South Africa from putting that all behind us by a long, long way. But it's still night and day to com compare to what I saw. Thanks for listening. And thank you to our team, producer Rachel Gottbaum and sound engineer and composer Michael Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at heritageradionetwork.org or by visiting our website, letstalkaboutfood.com or find them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. This podcast is supported by the Hunger to Health Collaboratory, a cross-sector leadership initiative dedicated to reducing the health consequences of hunger. With generous support from Stop and Shop, Hunger to Health Collaboratory convenes partners across sectors to advocate for health equity and food security. For more information, visit hungertohealthcollaboratory.org. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. 
Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. 